Hi, everyone. I'm Dina Peck, the Executive Creative Director of Patients and Purpose, and I'd like to welcome you all to another episode of the Healthy Perspectives podcast. Today, I'm here with some special guests, Carrie Sparling and Julie Whelan. Both are awesome patient advocates and influencers. I'm so glad you are both here um, and could be here with me today. So welcome and let's get started. Yeah, sure. And thanks for having us here. So my name is Carrie Sparling, and I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in 1986. So when I was diagnosed, we were just sent out freewheeling in this new world of not making insulin and then needing to find a way to either inject or infuse synthetic insulin into my body. And I think because I was diagnosed as such a little kid, the disease management part of things wasn't entirely on me at the outset. Like the needles were going into my skin and the doctor's appointments were about my care, but I wasn't doing the due diligence stuff when it came to diabetes management. My parents really acted as my surrogate pancreas in that way, which I appreciated because it let me continue to be a kid, even though that prepositional phrase of with diabetes was now beginning to dangle with permanence off of everything in my life. So I've had type 1 for 31 years and I went through elementary school with diabetes and I've gone through High school with diabetes and college with like, there's a trend with this like with so diabetes <laughs> right but it's not entirely and that's where it gets a little frustrating because sometimes you just want to have a wedding not your wedding with diabetes sometimes you just want to be a parent not the parent with diabetes so there's this um, psychosocial struggle about identifying as acknowledging my disease but not letting it be the whole of me and right. kind of cutting off that preposition as often as I can while acknowledging that it's still kind of there. How about you, Julie? So I received, about 10 years ago, I received the diagnosis that no one ever, ever, ever wants to hear. And I was in my late 30s. I had just had my second child. Um, I had been you know, pregnant for obviously you know, nine months, nine plus months. Um, and I had been having weird symptoms the whole time. That my doctor was just like, oh, yeah, you're pregnant. Like, it kind of comes with the territory. Don't worry about it. Um, and then six months after he was born, I was still having symptoms. I, you know, was getting more and more alarmed. And uh, they finally decided, you know, maybe we should do a little bit more testing. And what ended up happening was that at that point, it it was cancer. And I had I heard the word cancer and was immediately thrown into a lot of different tests. Um, you know, they wanted to do a, a blood test to figure out what might be going on. And, and then that was alarming. So then they sent me in for an ultrasound. And it was during that incredibly humiliating ultrasound that the doctor very callously was like, well, yeah, this is stage three, uh, maybe stage four. And I was like, oh my God, what just happened? So that then sent me in for a CT scan where sure enough, they did find that there were spots on my liver and they weren't quite sure what they were. So that then sent me in for a PET scan where the main tumor lit up, the ones on my liver didn't, but they weren't really sure why because it sure looked a lot like cancer. And I was left in the kind of this weird limbo land of, is this stage three or is this stage four? We're not really sure. We're not really sure how to treat you. Should we give you a Vastin? Should we not give you a Vastin? Here's all the side effects. Here's all the ramifications. So what do you think, Julie? What should we do? And I was just like, are you kidding me? Like a week ago, I was a mom, a wife, a, you know, a great employee, a, a friend, a daughter, like all these things, these layers of my life just got stripped away. And I suddenly was faced with this incredibly serious, life-threatening diagnosis. And I, there was just this state of disbelief of like, is this really my life? Is like, are, are you sure you're talking about me? Are you sure that was Julie Whelan on the on the test form because I like I, this can't be my life. Wow! Did did they talk to you at all about expectations during that time? Yeah, 
um, you know, a quick Google search, uh, which, you know, they tell you not to not to go to Dr. Google. But of course I did. And, um, you know, immediately got the, the really, really bad news that a stage four colorectal cancer diagnosis carries a 5% survival rate. Um, you know, I, it was at that moment that I decided, you know what, actually, I don't want to know the statistics because all I care about is that there's not 0% chance. As long as there's more than zero, then I'm going to be one of those people. And that's really where kind of the turning point for me came was just this incredible like fighting instinct within me to say, I I have to do everything I possibly can to survive this. Did you both feel, I mean, Carrie, you mentioned it a a bit about about your folks. Um, I think you you referred to it as being uh, the surrogate pancreas, Mm -hmm. which was perfect, Uh, (laughs) a perfect way to really think about it. But how were you supported by family, by friends? That's the weird thing about my life with diabetes is that I don't have any concept of before. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what it's like to sit down to a plate of food and just eat it. I always sit down to a plate of food and do the math before I eat it. So kind of adjusting to the life after diagnosis meant that this was going to be a part of my life and a part of everyone's life that was part of my life. And so for my parents, that meant that they were getting up in the middle of the night and checking my blood sugar for me. Um, I remember my mom used to get up at five in the morning to get ready for work. And I did. I was eight at the time. And so she would come into my room. She would, like, steal in in the night like the tooth fairy. And she would try to get my hand out from underneath the comforter covers to prick my finger. And so for the first couple of months of my diagnosis, this was, you know, a fight in the middle of the night and everything was upset and I didn't really like it. But then after a couple of months, she said that the door would open and that my finger would just come creeping out from underneath the blankets almost autonomically as though I knew that early morning vampirism was about to take place and I was just ready for (laughs) it and just stuck my hand out there. You know, no problem. But Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I was a little bit older and honestly became a mother myself that I got a real sense of how we it was. The needle wasn't piercing her skin, but every blood sugar that was out of range was her worry as well. Mm-hmm. Every doctor's appointment that didn't go perfectly was something that she felt like was a report card on her uh, prowess as a mother or the mm-hmm. mother of a kid with diabetes. And I'm ashamed at how long it took me to understand and acknowledge the we of my disease. And that's kind of part of what I talk about with a lot of the other patient advocates that I work with and families that I work with, because they need to understand that concept of we as soon as they can, because it's through our communities that we're able to really live well with diabetes. It's not something that we do as well with as isolationists. Right. What, what about you, Julie? So I was very lucky and very blessed because, as fate would have it, my dad had just retired. And so my parents were kind of figuring out what were they going to do next in their life. And they decided that, you know, caring for me and caring for my family was going to be what they did next. So they literally bought a home nearby. Wow. They um, they began caring. We called it the caretaker cottage because when they couldn't <laughs> be there and they needed to go back home, my in-laws would come into town and they would live in the caretaker cottage. And so I had... 24-7, if I needed it, care for my children. And as a reminder, like I, I had gotten diagnosed when, when my younger son was less than a year and a half old, and my older son was five. And so it was just, you know, I, you know, I had this port that was put in. That was the first surgery that I ever had. I, I had this permanent kind of chemo pump that I wore around everywhere, and there was this cord that went. So, you know, Carrie, you have a one-year-old. Can you imagine having this cord that goes into your body that comes out? Yeah, so you're like you're going to you show mean me this your... insulin pump here that we have. Yes, exactly. <laughs> a different mechanism, but the same but idea. Similar. That there's an external symptom of diabetes that your kids want to climb on, right? Or and whatever disease. They just like they they don't they don't notice that that's attached to your body, and right. they're like, oh, sorry, like I got my my Lego stuck on that yank, and like so that was the reality. 
of what I was going through. And um, and so I had my parents there to help. They would show up every morning at seven o'clock, get my kids ready to go to preschool and to, um, to elementary school. And they would get them off and then they would have kind of the day to themselves. And then they would come in at night and they would help with dinner again as well. As you said, I mean, it was a full-on family effort mm-hmm. of of helping me to get through that year of treatment and allowing me, quite honestly, the the latitude and the time and the mental headspace to do what I needed to do to, to psych myself up for mm-hmm. these really, really intense chemo sessions or radiation right. sessions that I had to go in for. And also potentially, right, to not, not even feel, to not feel guilty. Yeah. Um, it's almost giving you permission because the people who love you the most are now also not only still loving you the most, but they're they're loving your family. I think the, a mother's guilt is like omnipresent, like you can't escape it. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> and so I, looked, I, I did feel very guilty. I felt very, very guilty that I was, like, it was sad. It was guilt. It was it was just sadness. Like I wanted to be with my children. And I remember just being like this, you know, puddle of tears at one point about the whole thing and how, I guess, like having a little pity party for myself. And my husband was amazing through the whole thing. And his comment was like, Julie, you need to focus on you this year so that you can be around for many, 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 many more years mm-hmm. to come. And I really embraced that. And I really tried my best to say, OK, you know what? My kids are in such good hands right now and they are in such loving hands. And I need to I need to make sure that I'm taking care of myself so I can be here. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us about a little bit more about your your health experience and how it's influenced or even motivated you to be out there as an advocate telling your story? I think um, that feeling alone and isolated with diabetes is what prompted me to want to get out there and tell my story in the first place. So when I was diagnosed, I was a small child, had my parents to care for me, as we've already covered. But they also sent me to this place. uh, It was a camp that was specifically for kids with diabetes. So every single camper had diabetes. Every single counselor had diabetes. Everyone in the entire grounds, basically, had type 1 diabetes. And so instead of being the only person in my life at home in Rhode Island that shot up before breakfast... Everyone in this cabin was doing the exact same thing before they went to the mess hall. The nurse would reel in this trolley of uh, insulin vials and syringes, and all the kids would just whip out their needles and boost their insulin, and everything was cool. And that was so nice to have that peer support, to be able to look at this group of kids and go, oh, yeah, you guys do this too. I'm not the only one that does this. I'm not the weirdo. I'm not the strange one. And it taught me that not only was I not alone, but also that there were plenty of different versions of life after diagnosis and that they were all good and they were all worth pursuing. But it was weird because um, after camp and after I kind of aged out of my parents caring for the majority of my diabetes stuff, there was this weird abyss of adulthood where people didn't check in as often and I didn't really want them to. Uh, Different advocacy organizations were more geared towards taking care of small children and using them on their inspirational donation posters. And so the 25, 26-year-old people with type 1 diabetes were going, all right, well, I'm just going to go to work and I'm going to go on my dates and I'm going to try to do this and try to do that. But still at the core of things, we wanted to have that Me Too moment to find the tribe of people who understood what it was like to get ready for your job interview and find a place in your suit to shove your pump. Or it was like to sit across the table from someone on a first date and debate, do I make the disclosure about diabetes now or do I wait and hold that card for a little while? Does it become my litmus test for whether this person is a jerk? You know, So the mental dance of diabetes isn't just taking your insulin and checking your blood sugar. It's all the other psychosocial yeah. and emotional stuff that's baked into it. And I couldn't find those people. I couldn't find anyone else who was living with it. I would put diabetes into Google and like the first 25 pages of search returns were awful and illustrated the rotten ways that my body would start to fail me even more as I got older and lists of complications. And I don't, 
I don't roll my eyes at those to say that they're not possible because they are a true danger of life with type 1. But I didn't want to see that as the first search return. I wanted to see people who were living with it so that I felt that I too could live with it. And that's what prompted me to want to tell my story because if I was looking for it, there had to be at least one other person who was out there looking for me too. And so I put my story on a blog in 2005 and thinking, well, my boyfriend will read it. Probably my mom. And then all these people came out of the woodwork as though they were just waiting for that opportunity, too. And a group that was once four or five of us has now grown. It's 13 years later to there. I know more people now who don't make their own insulin than those who do. That's that's incredible. Right, though. And that's such a paradigm shift from growing up as the only kid in my entire town that shot up before breakfast. So, Julie, what about you? How has your healthcare experience uh, influenced and motivated you to be out there? So the year that I went through treatment, and it was almost a little bit actually more than a a full year, not even including kind of what they call survivorship, which happens after you end active treatment for cancer. During that active treatment period, it was just incredibly intense. Like it was, um, you know, I started out with, you know, simultaneous chemo and radiation, and then they gave me a month off and I went in for this you know, incredibly intense liver and, and colon surgery. And then I got another month off to recover from that. And then they hit me again with, they didn't want to let the cancer have too much time to regroup. So they hit me again with another four months of chemotherapy. And then they gave me a little bit of time off. And then I got to go in for um, kind of my last and final surgery. And all of that in total was about a year. And I was, you know, I, I very much wanted the doctors to do everything they possibly could to, um, to, you know, I, I, came to refer to the tumor as the bitch and I needed to get the bitch out of my body. And I told them like, get this thing out of me, do whatever you need to do. I can take it. I will figure out a way to take this. So they did. They, they gave me an incredibly intense, intense treatment. And so what I found I, I needed to do in the meantime was surround myself with a lot of healing services so that I could stay present. I could stay sane. I could I could help to reduce the anxiety. I could stay well nourished and and have the, the mental and physical strength to continue to kind of put one foot in front of the other every day. And so I found myself a nutritionist who specialized in cancer, and I found an exercise physiologist who was able to help me continue to, to run when I was able to, or at least move when I, I didn't feel like running, therapeutic massage and guided imagery and acupuncture and, you know, you name it. I had my whole team. My care team was very robust. And I, at the end of treatment, I remember my, my doctor, you know, coming in, I was just wrapped up my last chemo, and he hands me the certificate that says, congratulations, you're done. And I remember holding it and kind of incredulous and saying, like, really? Like, why wouldn't I have finished this? Like, this is like, this was my best chance at surviving. And he's like, yeah, but you'd be amazed at how many people can't finish. I was like, really? Like, it didn't really even dawn on me that other people wouldn't be able to get through it. And so I think that was this moment, this light bulb went off in my head where I was like, I need to, I need to stop. I like, there was something about the the resources I had, the the time that I was granted, the support that I had, the the financial um, resources that my husband and I were able to, to pull together, that allowed me to surround myself with all these other healing services that really are what got me through. And I knew that I needed to find a way to bring that level of support and healing to other patients like me. And so um, 
you know, kind of fast forward and I ended up partnering with my oncologist. He shared my vision, which is why he's such a gem and amazing human. Um, he shared my vision. We partnered together and we founded um, the Center for Integrative Health and Wellness at Marin General Hospital. That program, I, I built it and I ran it for a number of years. And then um, a few years ago, kind of passed the torch on to the next person and have since left. And, and now my vision is to take what we built there and figure out how do we take that level of more holistic patient care out to anyone in this country that needs it. It's incredible. It's incredible that that you've taken you've you've taken a lot of lemons um and made probably some of the best tasting lemonade out there, right? Um I'd love to switch gears a, a little bit. How do you think the patient mindset has changed over the past decade? Um, and as a as a separate piece to that, what role do you think social media plays on influencing patients uh, like you positively or negatively? If there is one thing that the patient mindset has switched to, it's acknowledging the fact that not everyone is as lucky as the people who have the privilege of being able to share their stories. Mm -hmm. Some people don't have the time to share their stories, can't take the time off from work. Going to doctor's appointments, you know, reams of them, you have to have the work support and the family support to attend those appointments. And it's, it's, it's shocking how many people don't have access to that. Specifically in the diabetes community, the patients are rallying around people who are not able to tell their own stories and hopefully rising to the occasion to tell those stories for them. Mm -hmm. Because that is our job. If we're going to say that we're advocates and we're going to say we're trying to help people, it can't just be about, well, what's the newest and the latest awesome thing that I can get my hands on? Show me the Apple Watch that shows me my blood sugar. No, bring it down a couple levels because people in our community are not able to survive without being able to access what we're so comfortably looking at in my butter compartment months in supply. So in coming full circle on that, the role that social media can play in these sorts of discussions is to remember the voice that doesn't have a chance to raise itself. Because otherwise, what is the point of all of all of the storytelling if we're leaving a huge community of people who need their stories shared the most out? Also, if you were diagnosed today, you could go and search for people like you and actually find them. So if there is a positive sort of thing to spin out of that, it would be that we're able to find our, like, people who are going through what you're going through and using social media and the internet in general as a way to build your community. So I don't want to diminish that. With that oversharing capability, though, is also um, an obligation to be honest about the experience that you're having. So, for example, if you look at Instagram, you are rarely going to see someone's messy kitchen, right? You're always going to see the zoomed-in perfect plate of curated food that they probably glaze with some weird shellac or something like not the to, disaster that it took to make yeah it. right like zoom out on that that's and i feel like a lot of patient advocates are being very honest about their experiences and giving a broad context view of what life with a specific condition can be like and so there's a weird dance between the perfectly curated version of a disease that you see on some social media channels but there's a lot of honesty that's that's crowding a lot of the perfection out and i i feel like patients probably benefit a lot from from seeing reality, life mm -hmm. for that, real. That that makes a lot of sense. So talking just more in terms of what what patients see, and if I can pivot a little bit mm -hmm. to just uh, you know marketing and advertising and brands and 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 whatnot that are that are out there. Um, what advice would you give uh, marketers and brands when it comes to connecting with patients? Prior to getting diagnosed, I had spent many years in marketing and, and brand strategy type of work. And I, I've had the privilege in my career of working for some really, really amazing, amazing brands and having just an incredible um, experience doing so. So, you know, fresh out of business school, I went to work at Harley Davidson. And then I went to, I got recruited over to Gap and, um, you know, kind of 
traded my leather for khakis, as I say, and then uh, went to Williams Sonoma, and then left there to do marketing consulting for brands like Jamba Juice and Visa, and you know, on and on. They're just like these really big, huge, iconic global brands. That the common thread among all of them. That, that And why I kind of very intentionally chose the companies that I worked for was that they all are laser focused on the customer. How do we really understand who he or she is and what's important to them, not just their needs, but their desires? Yep. And, I, you know, I've spent kind of countless hours, weeks, months, years, I don't even know at this point, talking about that customer and what's important to them. Um, and so then I get thrown into this healthcare experience. And quite honestly, I felt like, very few people asked me who I was and what was important to me. Um, you know, I think the exception is is a couple of my doctors, um, but so many people, it's just, it's such a, a functional transaction, as I call it. And it's kind of like, okay, here's your diagnosis, and I need you to go in for this test. And by the way, you know, we need to have the scan, and you need to get that paperwork from here to here. And and it, like nowhere in there was anything about me as a person and, and how to connect with me emotionally. Um, and I think that that's just such a missing opportunity in healthcare. There's nothing more important to, to an individual than their health or the health of the person that they love. And I, you know, I think about Harley Davidson and, um, you know, there, there are, there are loyalists who tattoo that brand all over their body mm-hmm. because they love, they love the brand. They love what it conveys. Harley has obviously touched them very deeply emotionally to the point that they're willing to alter their body to let the world know. And so Harley has done a brilliant job of connecting emotionally with people. And I think about, you know, how can healthcare as a, as a system begin to make that kind of emotional connection. And um, we have a long, long, long way to go. What about you, Carrie? Uh, For a chronic illness like type 1 diabetes, we're in this for the long haul, and we expect the marketers to be as well. And so that said, they need to understand the disease within the context of our lives. And I've mentioned that a thousand times, and I'll mm-hmm. mention a thousand more. Because very important. diabetes does not exist in a vacuum. And so they need to see it in the whole spectrum. And so one example is uh, when I sit at my endocrinologist's office, um, the TV screens, when I was in pediatrics, they used to play cartoons. But now that I'm a bona fide grown-up, they play <laughs> ads for drugs that I may need to take when my body develops complications. And the ads are terrifying. And they are always rooted in a lot of fear instead of hope. So as you're sitting there at the doctor's office waiting to go in and discuss your lab work results, potentially not feeling very confident about the results that you may get, and just feeling also like an overarching dominance of diabetes in your life, especially in that moment, to look up at the TV screen and see reasons why you might die is not like a, all right, that's not a good moment. And then fast forward to when you're at the pharmacy and just walking down any of the pharmacy aisles, and I'm sure everyone has seen boxes of glucose meters, and look at one the next time you go by one, you'll notice that there's a very specific range of numbers that are put on these meters. And basically, it's one number, and it's 104 milligrams per deciliter. It's like the perfect Photoshop version of a blood sugar. And it's a great blood sugar. I would pay to be that blood sugar all the time, but the reality is, is that I'm not. And so I would love to see a company that's willing to show that diabetes is more than just this one 104 of perfection, that we see a range of numbers from 32 500, depending on what we're looking at. And seeing yourself and your actual diabetes represented in the materials that are being marketed to you does help develop a little bit of brand loyalty. If there was a meter company that came out and said, here's our meter, it's in a box, it says 202 on the front of the box, they'd be like, oh, yeah, you guys get it. I'll buy all your meters and use them for the rest of my life. (laughs) Because they understand that it's not, I don't exist in a vacuum of diabetes perfection. And so having people just acknowledge that it's more than just that one brief moment. And go back to even marketing campaigns where you see the same poor lady who has diabetes or 
cancer or lupus or a cold. She is the stock photography model that everyone keeps choosing. And so when we see her on repeat, we're like, she's got that this week? Oh, now she has this? It's like every time you see the same smiling Photoshopped woman, she's dealing with a different health condition. That's not what we want to see. We want to see ourselves represented in that. Show me the woman who brings the Lansing device to her fingertip, and you can see from the tips of her fingers that they've been pricked for years. They are dotted and brown with efforts to control her disease. Not the perfect fingertip that's obviously never been lanced before. Like, we want to see our people represented We're in using, the I mean, tools. using stock photography in general, um, you know, as a, as a creative director, using stock <laughs> photography, <laughs> yeah. in, in my opinion, is not a good idea. I mean, we're, we're patients in purpose. Mm-hmm. And, and we have a very strong belief that, that uh, you know, having real patients mm-hmm. represent themselves is, is incredibly compelling and, and it's real. Mm-hmm. As it should be. Absolutely. So so you're leading me into my next thought, which is, so where have you seen it um, done right? Where have marketers done an excellent job? Um, and it doesn't even have to be within a condition that you're familiar with, but, it, but jump on in if it is. Um, one of the examples that really struck me recently that I saw was a children's hospital in Brazil that wanted to create this advertisement. And instead of talking about all of their accreditations and all of their awards and all of the the credentials of their doctors, um, or even talking about their cure rate, which would be another very appropriate thing to share with patients for sure. Um, but they, they went even one step further than that. And what they did was they, they pulled together this ad campaign where they worked with the creators of a lot of beloved children's cartoons. And they had those creators do special cartoons where they created the the cartoon character without any hair. And so then they invited all the children of their cancer center to come in. And the children, you could tell just by watching Mm -hmm. their faces, they didn't really know what they were about to see. And they were kind of like nestling in their parents' lap, kind of, you know, snuggling on the couch or whatever. And the parents were there. And then they start showing the, the ad campaign. And you see these children and their eyes just light up and they start smiling and they look at their mom and they're giggling with their mom because they get it. They get that all of a sudden what in the past made them feel very abnormal and weird and like they were on their own little island going through this disease. Suddenly they felt like, oh, my God, what I have is actually normal and it's okay. And um, and there's somebody that understands me and understands this point ab- about my life right now that's really, really hard. Mm-hmm. It's really yeah. hard to not have hair. Yeah, no, I, I know the campaign. I actually know it well. Um, I, I think the beautiful thing about that campaign was its level of authenticity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, when when we do work, even just as an a- agency, right, that is truly authentic um, and and not scripted in any way, um and purposeful mm-hmm. that that's when that's when everything goes right mm-hmm. um and i think that they did a fantastic job so i i love that that that's one of your faves cuz it's one of mine too just chatting a little bit about about life and and life at your fingertips today all the time you know you can push a button and have deodorant delivered order a car and have it show up in 5 minutes where does healthcare stand uh, will patients mandate change in healthcare too, or do you think that healthcare is exempt? I mean, it's industrialized at this point. So the system forces excellent clinicians to work within it, and clinicians have four nine o'clock appointments. I mean, how often did you go to an appointment and you were the third nine o'clock 
er sitting in that waiting room. I've done that countless times. I've waited two or three hours for doctors. I've driven hours to see doctors. And they are forced to work within a system that does not allow them to be human beings. And patients are also forced to rise to that system's occasion and also not be human beings. They become just diseases. They become just lab work results. They become just the next test or just the next person waiting in line. And so there has to be some kind of, of a revolution. And it's happening whether people like it or not, where there's a patient uprising. We're not telling our stories just because it's cute or convenient. We're telling them because we're trying to affect change. And it is actually happening. So whether the healthcare system wants my fellow people with diabetes to be going in and asking about this treatment method or this different uh, way of delivering insulin, they might not be encouraging us to do that, but we're doing it anyway. The patient uprising sounds like zombies. a bunch of zombies, <laughs> but, but maybe that would work even better. I don't know. But it's just it's so important for patients to feel empowered, regardless of where they stand socioeconomically, that their voice matters, that even if people keep saying that we're supposed to become the center of our healthcare, that we already are. We are already there. And it's time for people to start to listen, for the folks to start tuning in, because whether they want to or not, we're going to be demanding the change that we know we deserve. You know, I live in an area right outside of, of San Francisco in the kind of broader Bay Area that's so ripe with innovation. It's just, it's an amazing place to live in this day and age. And I think what I have seen in the 20 years that I've lived there is that the bar has come down in terms of, of what it costs to become an entrepreneur. Um, you know, like the, you know, Amazon, you know, cloud access and, um, and you know, the, the access to venture capital funding and all of these things have just made being an entrepreneur actually a pretty sexy thing to do. And a a relatively, not super easy, but relatively easy thing to do compared to generations past. And I totally agree. I think what's happening is this tidal wave of patients saying, wait a minute, like, you don't get it. Like, you're not understanding what I need in order to to live with this disease or live through this disease. And so because you didn't get it, I'm going to show you how it could be done differently. I, I, I think that there are, I have spent the last... Um, almost eight years in healthcare innovation. And there are tremendous, tremendous barriers. Tremendous. Um, you know, as they say, one person's waste is another person's job. And so I think that there are some incredible forces at play that are keeping a lot of innovation from coming to life quickly. But I also think that the, um, you know, going back to your question earlier about social media, mm-hmm. I think that social media allows what otherwise would have been an idea that maybe got, you know, the the following of, you know, 20 people mm-hmm. can now overnight get the following of, you know, 200,000 people. And that's the beauty of social media. And I think that it um, that's only going to accelerate innovation. And I think that what I've seen and the work that I've done is that healthcare systems are starting to open their eyes. They're starting to create their own corporate venture arms. They're mm-hmm. starting to realize if we don't start funding some of these companies, someone else is going to, and we're going to miss out. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a fascinating time to be in healthcare and to be a, a, a you know a patient with a loud voice in healthcare. Do you have anything to, to add to that, uh, Carrie? I know, again, I'm bringing up access, but to be able to use the app to download something that brings insulin delivered to my house or gives me access to my blood sugar results or whatever else. Like, I like knowing that I am in a category of people that can have that option. But I am concerned about the divide between the people who can access all of this excellent, approved, funded technology and then the people who are left behind because they can't. And I I stress the importance of people who have the opportunity to tell their stories to make sure that they're including 
the voices of people not in the room. And so that goes for patient advocates, that goes for marketing executives, that goes for people who work in, in the insurance companies. It's It crosses the board. We need to make sure that there's representation for everyone so that when it comes time to download the cure from whatever cloud is somewhere, like I'm all for it and everyone else who's in my community can also line up. Agree. I mean, I, I think that the, the idea of everybody having a voice, giving everybody the opportunity to have a voice, whoever is giving it really doesn't, it, it doesn't matter to me at all. Um, it matters that we go into the middle of Harlem and we have people telling their stories and that we we go to Detroit or wherever. I mean, we, we actually did do a program uh, in Memphis that I really feel honored to have worked on that was changing the prognosis of women with breast cancer who weren't even going for mammograms. Or then they'd find out that they had breast cancer and they weren't treating. Um, it's kind of crazy and it's all around us, um, but there's not enough talk about that. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close down a bit um, saying thank you so much. Um, you guys are amazing. You're amazing. Um, Thank you for your work as well. I mean, your organization's amazing, and I, I the, to have such incredible talent. That's that's the the collaboration that needs to happen to break mm-hmm. through the to break through the silence. Yeah, I think I think it was bold um, and very scary of us to change our name uh, mm-hmm. a little over a year ago to Patients and Purpose. Um, but we felt really strongly that everything we were doing. Um, was the right thing. Hopefully, everyone will continue to see that and 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 invest more in the patient and and give more of a voice to patients. So we're incredibly excited about that. Thanks for having us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being here. These ladies were so inspiring to me today as patients and as people. We can only hope that more patients continue to have a voice and more of those voices get heard.